Good morning and great to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 in just a moment as we continue our journey through Galatians. So if you've got your Bible, feel free to go ahead and turn there and grab your, note, your sermon notes. Uh, if you don't have one, there should be a Bible under a chair right around you. Feel free to grab that as well. Uh, we'll be in the New Testament in the book of Galatians, uh, working on a series through uh, the, the letters that Paul wrote to the church in the New Testament, and now we're in Galatians. So that's, that's where we'll be in just a minute. Um, just want to say this, if I haven't had a chance to come introduce myself to you yet this morning, my name is Jason, and I have the honor and privilege of serving in the role of lead pastor here at Solid Rock Church. And I serve among a body of elders, among whom Billy, who just prayed, is one. Men who love Jesus uh, more than they love themselves. And I am so encouraged by being around these men. I have the opportunity to serve with a staff uh, that works, I believe, harder than any other staff anywhere, uh, simply because they believe the gospel. And so um, truly it's an honor to be, uh, to be a part of this church family. If you are visiting with us, there are two things that I hope that you're able to discern and see just with one visit. One, um, that we are inwardly passionate about becoming a community of Christ, a biblical community. And outwardly, we are equally passionate about living out the mission he's called us to. And so um, hopefully you've begun to see a few glimpses of that as you've come this morning. Uh, we're going to open God's word now to Galatians chapter 2. We're on the second week in Galatians uh, started last week, went through Galatians 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. So we're going to start uh, today in verse 11. So, um, so much of what we're going to go over today is going to be uh, closely connected with where we were last week. Uh, Paul's letter to the churches in the, uh, in the, in the, in the region, uh, the, the folks known as the Galatians, uh, the, the, the tone of his letter uh, started pretty strong. Uh, he came out very passionate uh, very on fire, very stirred up, even maybe a little bit frustrated with uh, what has been taking place in the churches since he has left. And so just by recap, last week, as the letter opens, the first thing that Paul points out is that they've so quickly deserted the gospel. And so when we take a step back and ask the question, how did that happen in this church? How did they desert the gospel? What he ultimately points to is that they added to it. And that by adding to it, by adjusting it, by tweaking it in the least little bit distorts the whole thing. And so there was a certain angst and intensity to the way that Paul was talking. Matter of fact, he says, if anybody preaches to you, to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Strong words turned over to God. Well, now he's going to continue with that same angst and conviction to talk about a second issue that comes up when we add things to the gospel. Now, specifically what these folks were adding to the gospel. A lot of these folks came from a, a background um, of Judaism. And so as they were responding to the gospel in faith and the grace that is provided by Jesus that we just sang about, they were, they were falling in love with that. But rather than abandoning their religious systems that they formerly held as valuable, they were synthesizing the two together, taking the grace that Jesus offers and adding to it a religious, uh, a religious system, if you will, or religious conformity. And so what Paul says, as soon as you start doing that, you distort the gospel. Well, now a second issue is going to arise because of the same thing, as they add to their faith in Christ a conformity to religion, what happens now is the church begins to divide and we begin to see elitism and a sense of separatism set in amongst the church. And Paul is no less happy about that. So we're going to begin in verse 11 with Paul's 
uh, strong words about Peter. Okay, so Peter also went by the name Cephas. And so he begins in verse 11 by saying this, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Those are pretty strong words, right? I got up in his grill. I got toe-to-toe with Peter because he was wrong. So now we're going to step back again and say, well, what was it that Peter was doing that would cause you, as we'll see in just a minute, to publicly get up and oppose him in his face? Continue on in verse 12. The first part of verse 12 says this. For before certain men came from James. So that sets the scene. So evidently, Paul witnessed something where certain men, Christians, who were also Jews, came from the apostle James to wherever Peter was. And Paul watched them walk in, and he saw something happen that set him on edge. So here's what was going on before those men came. Before certain men came from James, he, being Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. Now, here in the 21st century, this is, a, this is part of our daily lives that I think we just so easily take for granted. With all the fast food uh, venues we have on every corner, it's so easy to just stop and grab something to eat on the way home. We don't fully um, appreciate what it means in New Testament context to sit down and eat with someone. Like just the idea of how much work and preparation and and intentionality it it took to, to pull off a meal, right? It took equal preparation to think about who you wanted to be there. Right, So it wasn't just last minute, hey, you want to stop and grab some, some pizzas? Maybe we'll have a, a family come over. Like It was prepared in advance. It was a plan. It was a very intimate thing to sit down, as we'll see from the example of Christ, and to share a meal with someone. So as Paul begins in verse 12, I feel Paul high-fiving Peter and saying, way to go. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Sitting down with Gentiles and eating with them. And we look at the example of Christ this was one of um, the things that was uh, that that um, one of the one of the accusations that was most commonly hurled at Christ. Matter of fact, in um, the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter nine, just after he called Matthew to come follow him, I don't know if you know this about Matthew. He was a tax collector uh, in this culture, not a very glorious profession. Uh, oftentimes this position was associated with those in the culture who you didn't want to be around. You didn't want to be friends with a tax collector. Okay? They worked for the government. Nobody liked them. So oftentimes they're, they're only friends with other tax collectors and other people in the culture who were rejected, other sinners, if you will. And so Jesus calls one of these guys to come follow him. Well, in Matthew 9, we see this shortly after that. Verse 10 describes it. And as Jesus reclined at Table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Does that give you some imagery of the intimacy of the meal? They weren't just sitting down for a quick bite to eat, they were reclining, which meant what? They were sitting there for a while, right? Not only were they eating, they were talking, they were experiencing community with one another. And so we get this vivid description of our Savior, right? The perfect example, sitting down and reclining in a leisurely posture, in in, in casual community, sharing the intimacy of a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 11 says that, this is Matthew 9, 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, so I guess they didn't have the courage to come to Jesus yet, 
they say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Oh, how, how dare, how does, he, how does he stomach that? I mean, just to sit across the table from, from a sinner, how does he do that? I love Jesus' response. It says, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners. I came to eat with sinners. I came to be with sinful people. That's who I've come for. Why are you surprised that this is who I'm eating with? This is my mission. Later on in uh, in chapter 11 of the same gospel, Jesus is talking, and he talks about how um, John the Baptist, his forerunner, was ridiculed for, for eating and drinking with sinners and that the word on the street was he had a demon in him. John the Baptist had a demon because he was willing to sit down and eat and drink with sinners. And then Jesus says, you know what they're saying about me? This is verse 19 of Matthew 11. The son of man, talking about himself, came eating and drinking in the same way. And here's what they said. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then this beautiful phrase, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, so we have our Savior setting an example for us, showing us that the very mission that we're on is the same mission he is on, right? To walk in community with people who don't deserve the love and grace of God, sinners, right? Because we all acknowledge what? We are one too, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God including these religious Pharisees who were looking down upon Jesus. And so now we've got Peter, what, the first part of 12, what's he doing? He's following Jesus' example. He's sitting down with the Gentiles. He's eating with them, sharing intimacy with them. But the second part of verse 12 begins with a but. But when they came, who are the they? These are the Jews who came, the Christian Jews who came from James, But when they came, he, being Peter, drew back, separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing the circumcision party, the Jews. Now we begin to see a problem, don't we? When you take this beautiful gospel that is for all who believe, and you begin to add to it, right? You must dress a certain way, you must do these things, you must talk a certain way, and you begin to add to the gospel. Not only does it distort the gospel, it begins to breed division, animosity, elitism among the people of God. And so we can begin to feel some more of that angst coming from Paul, from what he watched. He's watching Peter, living out the gospel, following the example of Jesus, eating with people who the rest of the culture would call sinners and unworthy. Peter's just dining with them having conversations, sharing community. And Paul is there and he watches, though, when the guys who come from James, these Jew Christians, show up, what happens? Peter pushes away from the table, pushes away from that community, brushes himself off, right? And begins to act like a Jew. This is where Peter got it wrong. Now, one thing I want to point out here is what was driving Peter was his fear. Fear of what? Ultimately, it was his fear of what people thought of him, right? He was fearful of that. Now, fear can be a magnificent tool to self-discover what your own idols are. Some of our ladies in our church are going through a Bible study right now. 
And it was pointed out that where our deepest fears are, oftentimes that is where our greatest idols lie. And so what we see here from Peter being driven by fear is what? Ultimately, at first it looks like he loves Jesus and he's following Jesus' example, but ultimately what matters most to him? What people think about him. You see how his fear of what people thought about him became an idol? Rather than being concerned with what Jesus has called him to and the example Jesus has set and what Jesus then ultimately means to him in this particular equation, I believe this is why Paul's saying he's wrong. He's allowed his fear of what people think of him become an idol. And it's driving him then to treat people in a way that Christ wouldn't treat people. He was fearing the circumcision party or the Jews. Now, there were cultural reasons for this, um, ethnical reasons for this, socioeconomic reasons for this. Um, I think if we label it in those terms, we can see where even in the modern-day church, we do a lot of the same thing. In certain church environments that maybe you've experienced where you didn't feel like you were a part of the in crowd because you weren't wearing the right clothing or um, because of the past that you experienced that nobody even really knows about, but if they ever knew who I was or how much time I did in prison or what has happened in my life, they wouldn't let me in. And so you felt isolated, maybe more direct than that. Maybe you had some experiences where because of the color of your skin or because of the school that your children went to, for whatever the reason was, you just didn't feel like you fit in. There was a separatism there, right? There was a sense of elitism, a sense of, right? And so by adding to the gospel, what inevitably happens is division. Now here's the major problem that Paul's gonna have with that. At the cross, so today's sermon title is reconciled. It's one word that means two primary things. First and foremost, the cross has reconciled our relationship with God put us in right relationship with the maker of the heavens and the earth. And it's such an intimate relationship that he says to us, call me dad. That's how close we're going to be. And I'm going to refer to you as a son and daughter. But the second part of the gospel is what? That also our horizontal relationships have been reconciled. The imagery I get in my mind that I try to use in teaching this is this, that as I've, my soul has been awakened to the grace of God at the cross And as the cross draws me into a deeper relationship with the Lord and I pursue Jesus and I'm focused on Jesus, then something something else is going on. As you do the same, look at what's happening to us. We're being drawn into a deeper and more intimate relationship. And as I pursue the cross, at some point I look up and, whoa, look, you're there. And, And you do the same. And so with the singular object of pursuit, Jesus himself, as we pursue Jesus together, he's ultimately doing what? He's drawing us closer and closer and closer, and closer, and more tight-knit as a community. The word I like to use is interwoven, like a finely woven rug with a really, really high thread count to the point where it's, you can't even tell where one thread ends and another begins, but you step back and look at the whole of it, and it's beautiful. That is how the bride of Christ is described. We are interwoven together. And so... What they were doing was beginning to tear at the seams of that community and to separate into different people groups, different socioeconomic groups, different ethnicities. Um, I think it's a tragedy that in the 21st century, 2,000 years removed from the event of the cross, that in the United States of America, the last formally segregated institution is the church. 
the very people trusted by God with this message. And we do it ethnically, right? We do it socioeconomically. We do it culturally. We so quickly add to this gospel and begin to divide and separate the people of God. And, and, and now we begin to understand why Paul was so upset. By unraveling the community of Christ, you begin to pull at the threads of what holds us together. And then let's just see what happens next. So after he drew back in fear, verse 13 of Galatians 2, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so this wasn't just an isolated issue with Peter, was it? His, the way he lived out his faith was beginning to affect the way that others lived out theirs. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now this is a pretty intimate thing that he just mentioned. Barnabas and Paul, the author of this letter, have spent a lot of time together in ministry. They walked a lot of roads together to share the gospel with sinners, with Gentiles, with people from different ethnicities. They went to, to great lengths. Matter of fact, if you read their story in, uh, in Acts, uh, they, they, at one point they have kind of a, a, a coming to a disagreement, a sharp disagreement, and they go their separate ways for a while, but ultimately are reconciled. The ministry that Paul poured into Barnabas meant something to him, and he's, you can feel that from him. You've even led my partner Barnabas astray in this. The one who accompanied me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, you've even influenced his life, Peter. Now here's something that we have to understand about every human being. Your actions are never only your actions. Everything you say, everything you do, influences and affects someone else. Period. Always. So we'll give you just a positive example, okay? Um, so uh, I'm looking out at a room full of people who showed up at church today. Do you realize how much your attendance here today has affected the whole? Wasn't it glorious when earlier in worship, the people of God were singing so loud, you could begin to hear the people singing over the band coming through the speakers? Well, what does it take to make that happen? You, you have to be here for that to happen, right? Just your presence here today affects other people. Now, we could keep going, right? On and on about how the way you're walking out your faith encourages and stirs one another up. But guess what? The opposite is true as well. If we're not cautious, the things coming out of our life will negatively affect, how about our spouse, our children, the people around us? Your Life is never only your life. You may be a person who is very introverted and maybe you don't, you don't come in contact with a lot of people. Your life still affects other people. It does. And so what Paul is pointing out here is the hypocrisy that, that because of Peter's fears, his idols, what was happening? It was beginning to affect the rest of the church. Even leadership was coming down with him. If you're taking notes... The way I live out my faith in Jesus always affects the community of Christ. Always. I'll give you one more example from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is describing the community of Christ, this 
interwoven rug, if you will. He calls us a body, like a human body. That's how intimately woven we are together and how interdependent we are on one another. And listen to the way that Paul describes our unity and our community. This is in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to start in verse 24. He says, But God has so composed the body, that's us, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Listen to verse 26. So that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. If you think about the, the body of Christ as a, as a rug, if, if one corner so much is moved, the whole rug feels it. Right? Here's the thing. That can't be true unless we show up. Unless we are spending time with one another. Unless we're following Jesus' example and intimately walking in community with one another. Sharing meals together. And I'm not talking about those, those quick drop-in fast food meals, but when we're, when we're intentional and we sit down and we do more than just eat, we also talk. Still in our culture today, right, can be one of the most intimate things we do with another human being is to sit down and share a meal and a conversation and ultimately share life. That's why our life group's ministry is so important to us here. We're not trying to push a program. We just understand the value of community and the great ends that Christ has gone to to provide it for us. And we realize that if all we do is do this on Sundays, right, it's going to be hard for us to feel when somebody's suffering, isn't it? It's going to be hard to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing in this context. Now, it's interesting at Solid Rock because we have um, two services, uh, yet there's, we have a small room, so it still feels like a really small church, like everybody should know each other. And we forget that we're, we're a church over 300 people, right? And so we have to be intentional about our pursuit of community. Again, so why we want to invite everybody to be a part of life groups, to have a, a smaller group of people that you can get to know and who can get to know you to walk through life with, to live out this community. We understand that the way we live out our faith in Jesus always affects the community of Christ. Verse 14, this is Galatians 2. But when I saw, so Peter's still describing what he saw when this went down, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Cephas, before them all. So his confronting Peter face to face was in front of the whole group. That's how upset Paul was. He says this to Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, that's where he was getting it right. He had abandoned right, his Judaism and all of this uh, moral conformity and said, you know what, I'm going to walk like Jesus, I'm going to live among the people. That was where he got it right. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you, here's where you get it wrong, force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see what he was doing indirectly? As he began to push away from the Gentiles to hang out with his, his Jewish boys, what was he saying to them? You can be in the in crowd, but you need to be like us. You need to be like us. So Paul says, Peter, when you were spending time with them, when you abandoned Judaism to, to, to live among them, you were getting it right. The problem is whenever you separate yourself and said to them, you now you've got to come become like us. Separatism. Division. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to Galatians 3. 
So the issue that Paul has brought up, he's going to bring a fantastic solution in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28. Paul describes then what God has done, what God has gone through, what extents Christ has gone to, to reconcile us, not just vertically to God, but horizontally towards one another. So in verse 26, Galatians 3, it's just one chapter to the right, um, Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. I'm glad he added that. We are all sons of God through what? Faith. Are we different? Yeah, we're different. We look different. We come from different backgrounds. Some of you may come from privileged families, successful backgrounds, top of your class, went to college, fantastic careers. Other folks in the room spent more of their adult life in prison than they have out in the free world. Different backgrounds, right? We're different all over the place. Different ethnicities, okay? But what fuses us together, what what fuses the rug together is our faith. If I believe in Christ and you believe in Christ, we meet each other at the cross. And we don't just meet each other, right, as, as who I used to be or who you used to be. We are now changed. I meet you there as a son of God. He says this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's who you are now. Our faith fuses us together. If you're taking notes, my faith in Jesus has secured my identity, has secured my identity, and adopted me into the community of Christ. There is nobody who is a Christian who's not also adopted into the community. Now, sometimes we've, we may have been through experiences that make us feel that way, right? May have gone through experiences that make us feel left out, that because I didn't look this certain way or dress a certain way or act a certain way or come from the right background, I kind of feel left out, but that's not the gospel, right? That's just religion, I've had people who've come to our church saying, well, do you let people, do I need to keep my tattoos covered or is that going to be an issue? I'm like, really? I mean, unless it's like something completely inappropriate, don't show my son. But like, no, like the fact that you, what are you talking about? You don't have to go get tattoos to fit in, but you can fit in without them. So like, yeah. And then people find out that, that I have a tattoo and they're like, oh, is that before you became a Christian? No. You, you see the point how even in our culture, now, kids, I'm not telling you to go get tattoos. That You check in with your parents on that. But the point is the same, right? Like, it's not our outward appearances that either define us or don't define us. We are fused together by our faith in one Savior, and he's Jesus. And if you believe in him, we are now community with one another. And just like your own family, we've got to take what, we, what it comes with, right? Like, I'm sorry, you, you get me. I get you, so it's all good. Our faith in Jesus secures our identity and adopts us into the community. Look at verse 27, this imagery of baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, I'm still in Galatians 3, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's this imagery from the baptism experience where you're submerged in water and you come out dripping wet the same way that your body was submerged in that water. You're now submerged in Christ. This idea of putting on is the idea of actually literally putting on or um, having your body covered by something like a blanket. And this is the intimacy you now have with Christ. That whatever barriers were there, whatever reasons there were for God 
He's got plenty of them, right? To not walk in community with us, they're gone. They're all gone, every one of them. Every reason that God had to say to me, you know what? You don't deserve to spend time with me. You don't deserve to be in a relationship with me. You don't deserve to be in my family. Whatever those reasons were are gone at the cross. All barriers have been removed, and that relationship is reconciled, all of it. You know what that means? That there isn't a a, a deep, dark secret from my past that I'm waiting to figure out the verdict on when I get to heaven. Right? I'm not still walking in anxiety and tension. What happens when this one comes out? I know it. It's all or nothing. Every last thing has been reconciled. Every barrier removed between me and God. If you're taking notes, my faith in Jesus has removed all barriers between God and me. All of them. But in addition to that, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What did he just say? Guess what? Just like all the reasons that, that all, the, all the barriers and reasons that were there that prevented you from having a relationship with God that are gone, guess what? All those same reasons that stand between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're all gone as well. There is no longer Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, those who have been privileged and those who have been through hard times, those who are rich and those who come from poverty, those who are white, those who are black, those who are brown, and all in between. Those barriers no longer exist in Christ. And if you are Christ's, verse 29, if you are his, Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, uh, Paul brings this topic up in his letter to the uh, church in Ephesus in chapter 2 and talks about the hostility that stood there as a barrier both between us and God and us and fellow man, that, that hostility that was there. I want to read a few verses from Ephesians 2 to us today. I'm going to start in 14. I'm going to read verse 14 and 16. If you want to turn, you can just to the right. It's one book, but you can stay where you're at as well. So Ephesians 2, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus and the work he did on the cross. For he himself is our peace. Okay, so peace is what? Peace is the remedy for, for, uh, for broken relationship. Peace is the, is the remedy for hostility. Now there's peace between who? For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jump to verse 16 that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see how in Paul's mind, when one barrier was removed, so was the other one? Whatever was keeping me from God was keeping me from you, and Jesus killed them both at the same time. Well, think about that. Whatever reasons I have... Right To not walk in community with another person, all those reasons were also on the list of reasons why God didn't have to walk in community with me. And at the cross, Jesus killed them both. And so when I go to God and go, I'm so thankful for the relationship I have with you, please don't make me hang out with that person. You see the foolishness of that? And God responds, I've either killed it or I haven't. 
I've either removed the barriers or I haven't. And so ultimately, it's about what I believe to be true. Let me, uh, let me point out something um, here, because I think one of the greatest barriers that still exists between us and our horizontal relationships with other people is the barrier of offense and unforgiveness, which was the primary barrier between us and God, right? Now, let's think about that. Those, almost every person in this room, I would dare say every person in this room, has been offended and hurt by someone, okay? Some of you even today. As Joe mentioned, some of you even have offenses lingering over from the car ride to church this morning. Okay? There's a, uh, there's a movie out on the, it's, it's basically the movie of, of the life of Christopher McCandless. It's called Into the Wild. And, uh, and it's basically a story of a young man who grew up in, in a home where there was a lot of abuse. Mom and dad abused each other, abused the kids. He saw a lot of hypocrisy. So he grew up a lot of bitterness and a lot of resentment towards um, those who would pretend to be a certain way. So he did the thing. He, he graduated top of his class, went to college, graduated top of his class in college. But after he finished jumping through all the hoops of culture and society, he bailed, said, I'm done with this. He donated the rest of his savings, like 20, 30 grand to charity. He took his old Datsun car and just started driving across the United States. At one point, he stops and burns his money because he doesn't want to be burdened or, or reminded of anything that used to just to set him off or frustrate him about his parents, about the culture. He ends up losing his car, and he's hitchhiking around. Ultimately, he's headed to Alaska to live in the wild. One of the last people that he comes in contact with in his journey before he hits the, uh, the Alaskan Trail is, is an elderly gentleman by the name of Ron Franz. And uh, Ron is, a, is, a, is, a, is kind of a hermit. He had lost his family a long time, and so he had withdrew from culture and society. And they end up meeting together. And, uh, and, and spend some time together. And there's a conversation they have at the end of their time together up on a mountaintop where Ron begins to kind of poke at the issue with this young Christopher kid who was just carrying all this bitterness. He tries to get him to talk about his family. He won't. He tries to get him to explain why he's running and he won't. And he, he, he's a wise old man. He points at it. He, he points at it and says, listen, I can tell you've, you've had some rough times in your life. I can tell your experience with your family has hurt you. I can tell you that, that you're kind of out on religion. And ultimately, Ron is sharing the gospel with Christopher. I mean, here's what Ron says to this young Christopher guy. He says to him, this is a quote from the movie, Christopher, when you forgive, you love. When you forgive, you love. What a simple and profound statement. And yet many of us are allowing that barrier of unforgiveness to keep us from being reconciled with the people around us, family members, friends, situations. You see, you see how the barrier is the same? God has said the barrier between you and me is your sins. So guess what? I'm going to take care of that for you. I'm going to send my son to pay the penalty that you deserve that your faith in him, that alone, that's all you have to do. Believe in him, and I'll forgive it all, and I'll remove that barrier, and I'll give you forgiveness. And we, when we receive that, we breathe in, don't we? Oh, feels good. The weight is gone. And God says, hey, guess what? I didn't just remove it between you and me. I removed it between you and them, too. And see, when we choose to not forgive, we're choosing to not, what? Love. Think about that. 
Think about how the way God defines love. For God so loved the world that he did what? Sent his son that we might have the forgiveness of sins. First John 1 describes it this way. In this is love, that Christ Jesus laid his life down for us. And so you see, we can say, I love this person, but when we choose not to forgive and to allow that barrier to stay there, ultimately we're choosing to not love them. Do you remember who Jesus told us that we are to love? People we like, people that are easy to get along with, people that look like us. Love your enemies. Love those who have hurt you. What is he saying? He's saying to walk in rhythm with the gospel. Remember what Paul just said about Peter and the crew? You're not walking in line with the gospel. What does it look like then to walk in line with the gospel? It means to walk in forgiveness of others. Now, let's walk through a couple of things. If you're taking notes, my faith in Jesus has removed all barriers between others and myself, including. This is just a short list. You've probably got things in your life that are on this list that you need to think of. But here's a few things. Those people that I don't like. There's never a place within the community of Christ for us to say, I just don't like being around that person, therefore I'm going to avoid them. If anybody deserved to not be liked by somebody, it was me, right? I deserved to not be liked by God, yet he loved me instead. And he's saying, you emulate that same love to one another. There is no reason, there's no excuse in the community of Christ to ever look at a certain person based on their personality, where they come from, what they look like, and say, I don't like you. Let's let's take it deeper. Those who are different from me. Those who are different. Um, I've shared it with you openly before um, that I grew up in a, in a culture that was very prejudiced. I grew up being told that you don't have value unless your skin is white. I'm so thankful that I met Jesus who corrected that in me. Shortly after becoming a Christian, I remember falling in love, in love with people who looked different from me people who just months earlier I thought I was supposed to avoid and not hang out with and now all of a sudden something changed within me. What was it? It was Christ. People who are different from me either ethnically, socioeconomically, all the reasons that we divide and compartmentalize ourselves into these little subcultures. Jesus has removed all those barriers and then this one even a little bit deeper, those who have offended me. By choosing to forgive, you are not saying that what a person did is right, and you're not saying that what a person has done to you, it wasn't hurtful. Those two things can be true, and at the same time, you can choose to forgive. When we examine what God has done for us and the forgiveness he's given to us, how can we not love with forgiveness? Some of you, because I know the reality of walking in a dark and fallen world, some of you have been hurt really deeply. And some of the the offenses that you are harboring and the pain that you feel goes back a long, long ways to something that may have happened to you when you were younger, a former relationship with with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, maybe even something you experienced as a child. 
And somehow we buy into the lie that if we choose to forgive what happened to us, we are saying that what happened to us was right. Bring that argument before Jesus. Right? He's in no way saying that our actions were right, yet he's choosing to forgive us, isn't he? And that's the point of forgiveness. You're saying that what you did was wrong and it did hurt, yet even still I will choose to love you and I'll choose to forgive. Now that, that can be a process for some. Um, it's why here at Solid Rock we, we want to be available to walk with you in community, uh, to walk this out over time, maybe even through some counseling. But ultimately what God is saying through what we're reading here is that Jesus has done enough to remove all the barriers. All of them. All of them. That we might walk reconciled. Here's the last note if you're taking blinks. And this is really important for us. I'm praying that we would grow into this next statement as a church. Okay? In Christ, the church is more than a gathering place for friends. And I know that's the way some of us think of it, right? It's just the place I get together with my friends. In Christ, the church is more than a gathering place for friends. We are, we are adopted into the same family. So what Joe said earlier in the service and what you saw in the video from our family to yours, that's not just cliche. That's theology. We believe that that's true. We truly are a family as a church. We're not simply a gathering place for friends. We are adopted into the same family and we share in the same inheritance from God. So because I have the opportunity to to be the lead pastor here doesn't mean that my inheritance is any better than yours. We get the same thing from our Christianity. Guess what it is? We get God. That's our inheritance. And and, and so like like a, a, a tightly woven rug, you and I are interdependent, interwoven. I need to be so close to you that when you hurt, I feel it on some level. Right? And you need to be so close to me that when I, when I feel victory, when there's something to celebrate, you feel it a little bit. That is the community of Christ. Just a couple of questions for reflection, and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. If you're taking notes, these are in your um, sermon notes, and always encourage you, the back side of your sermon notes is there. If God speaks something to you, reveals something to you, shows you something that he's asking you to do, I encourage you to write it down. Something very powerful about saying, okay, I I hear from you, Lord, I'm writing this down. Um, I I encourage you to do that. I'm going to walk through these questions, though, of reflection. And I want to start with this. I I just wonder if you've ever stopped to evaluate something. Have you ever stopped to consider the ways in which your life affects the people in the community of Christ? Maybe today was the first time you realized that just by showing up, you have a significant impact on the community of Christ. Your presence here today encourages and stirs one another up. Have you ever stopped to consider that? Guess what? Your absence then, right? Your absence can cause us to miss you. Your absence means that you're not here singing with us and stirring with us. This next question, do you see yourself as someone who inspires or discourages others to pursue Jesus? So I think ultimately there's no, there's no neutral ground here. Okay? Not asking that you walk perfectly in morality, but walking truly in faith and step with the gospel. Think about that. Whether it's just your, your spouse or your children, the people around you at work, when you think about your life, 
Do you see yourself as someone who inspires or discourages others to pursue Jesus? Or do you feel like you're still in that neutral zone? Um, this next one is this. In what ways do you struggle to see the full impact of the gospel in your life? And here's some examples. Do you truly believe that all the barriers have been removed between you and God? Or earlier when I was talking about that one thing you're still waiting to figure out when you get to heaven if you're going to be forgiven for, maybe that stirred something up in you and you realize, you know what, that's me. I'm not truly walking in freedom, believing that God has 100% forgiven everything and removed every barrier. Others of us may be struggling differently. Do you believe that all the barriers have been removed between you and those people that you don't like? It's a faith move to choose to spend time in community with somebody that you don't like. To say what? The barrier is gone. I'm gonna walk forward. I'm gonna go spend time with this person. Let's go eat lunch together. Let's at least let me sit by you in church. Like I'm a, I'm a, in faith, I'm gonna be close to you and just see what God does. Some of my closest brothers in the faith were people I didn't like before I became a Christian. True story, true story. Um, how about this? A little bit deeper. Do you believe that all barriers have been removed between you and those who are different from you? So maybe you grew up in a home that was very judgmental or um, prejudice against certain people or ethnicities, and you realize that influence on your life. And today, maybe today for you is to believe the full gospel and realize those things are broken down. There's no reason for me to not live in community with somebody who's different from me. And then another one. Do you believe that all the barriers have been removed between you and those who have offended you? Do you truly see not just your sins on the cross, but the sins of those who've hurt you? Their sins are on the cross too. Do you believe that? That could be your spouse, <laughs> or it could have been somebody who hurt you deeply when you were a child. Either way, Jesus died for both of them. And just leave us with this. Are there any relationships in your life right now that are currently uh, divided or experiencing tension? This might be something for you to evaluate, go home and think about, set up a, a time to eat lunch with somebody this week. Um, I'll tell you this. Sometimes I don't even know the tension's there and the Holy Spirit will reveal it to me. And I'll go spend time with a person and through the conversation it'll come up. And so maybe that's where you are today. You just can't figure out why there's this awkwardness there. Or maybe you do know why and you're just avoiding it. Either way, maybe today you would take a faith move. I believe that Jesus has broken down these barriers. I'm going I'm to move forward into this relationship and see what God does. I'm going to pray for us and then ask Jason and the worship team to come back up. So let's just take a moment to pray together as we do so. Um, during the music, our prayer partners are going to be available um, they'll have on uh, lanyards with black badges, say prayer partner. We'll have a few at the front, a few at the back. As has already been mentioned in our service, they're here to pray with you and talk with you. So we want you to feel free to, to stand up and move. And um, we even have counseling prayer rooms available in the back. If you just want to go somewhere and be by yourself or you want somebody to go with you, you can go to one of our prayer partners and say, can we go to one of the counseling rooms? I need to talk for a minute. And that's available as well. Um, let me pray for us as we get ready to respond. Father, we're so thankful that you have done what it takes. You've gone to the extents necessary to remove all the barriers between us and you. That you now tell us to call you dad. And so God, out of that beautiful relationship we have with you, now you're calling us to go extend that love and forgiveness horizontally to the people around us, God. And ultimately to live as the community of Christ, as the family of Christ. 
God, I pray over the people here today, and I pray over this church, God, that you would continue the process of drawing us closer to yourself. And as you do that, God, continue the process of forging our hearts together, welding our lives together, weaving our lives together in such a way that we might become truly the community of Christ. Lord, we pray for any person who doesn't know you today, that today would be the day they would come to you to bring their burdens, to bring the the baggage of their sins and all their shame and to lay it down at the foot of the cross and to believe upon Jesus and the forgiveness that he so freely offers. So God, we ask you now to move among us. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit to, to speak to our hearts, to move among us. Call us to respond, God that we might be changed today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.